What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and how those three subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. I am, as you can guess, very excited to come back with another episode. We've got a unique one planned. We have one that's going to be a little different. We're going a deep cut into our 80s nostalgia wayback machine. And we are going to be discussing a whole genre and style of both literature and film through the lens of one of, if not our favorite versions of said genre. It's almost as if we were here doing the podcast and suddenly the lights went out. And when the lights went on after hearing a thud on the ground, we found that the host of the party had a dagger in his back and had been murdered. And now we have 24 hours to figure out who did this murder before we all get blamed for it or something like that. Yes, well, the mission of the Midnight Myth podcast is to find history, mythology, and philosophy in our popular culture. It's almost as if we're detectives and we're trying to figure out who killed him and where and with what. We just have to know the answer to who done it. Nice. This is our episode on the who done it, and we're going to filter the who done it through the 1985 classic comedy starring none other than Tim Curry. We're going to talk about Clue. Clue. Now, this is a movie that came out in 1985, so obvious spoiler walls are up. I highly recommend that you've seen the movie before talking about, pardon me, before listening to this podcast. Um, that being said, I'm very excited to do this one. We had very early in the Midnight Myth, we did an entire episode about detective narratives called, I think, just Detected. Yeah, Detected. It was it was Sherlock Holmes and, you know, the idea of detective fiction in general. Yeah. And we talked about the detective as a character trope who brings order to chaos. It is the detective who it is their job once something has happened that's disrupted the natural order to bring it back into order by figuring out what happened when this crime was committed. Well, the whodunit operates in a similar fashion, except it's usually all chaos. I can't wait to talk about the conventions of the genre, what it means, what this movie means, and sort of uh, finding the historical, philosophical 
not as much mythological, but we do have some mythology. A in little this bit, one. yeah. All right, I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and start talking all things who done it, all things clue. But before we get too deep into the conversation, Laurel, plug the plugs. Oh, let's plug the plugs. Okay, so first thing you got to do if you're listening to this and you're not following us on social media, what are you doing? Where you been? Uh, first thing you got to do is follow us on Twitter. We are at the Midnight Myth, or we are on Instagram and Facebook at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we would love to hear from you if you want to drop us a line, tweet at us, give us a suggestion for a future episode, or give us feedback on the episodes we have. We would love to hear from you, and we're always waiting uh, to dialogue with you there. Um, the other place where you can get more information and support us is on our website. That's www.midnightmyth.com. Uh, this website is kind of your hub for the Midnight Myth. You can find a link to our merch store if you wanted to get uh, merch from the Midnight Myth or from our side podcast, The Wheel of Ka, which just recently published a new episode. It's a month-by-month uh, -month exploration of Stephen King's The Dark Tower. But we have merch for both of those. So definitely check that out. You can also on our website find a link to our Patreon, uh, which is a platform where you can support us for a monthly donation. And that helps us to cover our costs, but also gets you a few extra perks. So you'll get bonus episodes, or you'll get shout outs on the pod, or you'll get a merch discount, all kinds of things that you'll get from us. Um, we are so grateful to our Patreons, uh, M, Heath, Mary, Liz, Beth, and Flavio. We love you to death, and we just published a new Patreon uh, exclusive episode. So if you want to get in on that pile of extra content from us, now is the time to support us on Patreon. Um, what else do we have going on? Um, I think that's everything. If uh, you dialogue with us on Twitter, 99.9% .9 of the time, you're going to be talking to Laurel for at the midnight myth, just throwing this out there. If you want to talk to me, you probably don't. Cause let's face it. Oh, Laurel's the cool one here. I'm on. the dork. It's at Derek C Jones, one nine eight. You can hit me up too. Um, otherwise just go to at the midnight myth. I'll always see it. And I'll comment too, if I think it's relevant. And if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you head over to your favorite podcast listening app hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple podcasts. Every five-star review that we get, every rating, every comment that is left to us, not only helps us to rise in the charts, but warms our cold, cold little hearts. Uh, I mean, my heart's not cold. Your I... heart's very warm. Yeah. Mine's cold. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's just something that brings us great joy and helps us continue uh, this machine that we love so much. Is your heart as cold as a cook being stabbed in the back and stored in a freezer? Exactly that cold. That was yeah, very specific, yeah, but totally true. Absolutely. That's how cold the cold is. All right, let's talk Clue. Yeah. All right, let's uh, begin, I would say, with a briefest of briefest of recaps. I am not going to go into a lot of detail. It will be brief. Clue features a group of characters all based off of the um, Parker Brothers board game Clue, which hopefully we've all played as kids. I know I have. We have Mr. Green, Professor Plum, uh, Mrs. Scarlet, or pardon me, Miss Scarlet, etc. They are all aliases being called to a dinner party at a mysterious mansion held by a Mr. Body. As the night unfolds, we learn that each one of them has some connection, whether it's professional or personal, to Washington, D.C., and they're all being blackmailed by a Mr. Body, who is also a guest here at the dinner party. 
Mr. Body distributes a series of weapons and says we should all kill the butler who summoned us here because if I get exposed as Mr. Body, your deeds that I'm blackmailing you for will get exposed as well. The lights go out and Mr. Body is murdered. What follows then is a classic whodunit being where our main characters are being led around by Wadsworth the butler trying to figure out who killed Mr. Body before the police arrive in 45 minutes. As the night unfolds, more people come to the house. Each one gets killed, including the cook and the maid, Yvette. And the singing telegram. Yes. All culminating in a conclusion in which all of the characters are gathered. Wadsworth explains the crimes and the murderer gets to gets locked up. Funny thing about Clue is it has three different endings to the movie, all of which are equally plausible. The first two saying this is how it could have happened. And the last one saying, this is how it really happened. Yeah, and funny thing about those three endings, when this movie had its theatrical release in 1985, each theater was shipped only one ending. Some would actually advertise which ending you were going to get, A, B, or C. But the idea was that they were trying to entice audiences to come back and see this movie again and again and again to try and uh, piece together the three different endings and choose which one they liked best. Unfortunately, this completely backfired on the production. I am sorry to say this movie did not even make back its $15 million budget and was a complete flop at the box office and was critically very mixed, mostly negative reviews. Uh, So why are we even talking about a movie that was panned and that performed so poorly at the box office? Um, Part of that is because it's gone on to have an incredible uh, life as a cult classic. This is a movie that is extremely rewatchable and that today has some of the funniest gags I can There are some that I can't even describe without bursting out into fits of laughter. It has a star-studded cast with, I mean, Madeline Kahn, a complete legend. Tim Curry, also a legend. Eileen Brennan. I mean, the, the cast in this is outrageous, and the ensemble of it carries it so well uh, and also pulls off the conventions of a whodunit genre while being based on a board game. I mean, what a crazy idea that somehow uh, somehow holds up. What do you think, Derek? What are your thoughts on this movie? Well, I happen to have several. Having just watched the movie in preparation for this podcast, I must say it holds up extraordinarily well. I saw this movie on like a whim on cable TV yeah, me when too. I was a boy, probably home from school sick, Or maybe it was like a rainy Saturday. I don't remember when. I'm pretty certain I watched it alone. I don't think I watched it with my family either. I have the same memory. I watched it probably on a sick day. It happened to be on cable. I was by myself and was like, what? Based on the board game that I play at parties? I have to see this. And I adored it. I absolutely adored it then. And I adore it now. It is. It is a shame that this movie flopped. I, When you say that it was mostly critically panned, I went through finding some reviews. It's really hard to find a genuine good review from a professional quote-unquote film critic. Even the ones that are more positive are like, this movie sucks, but I like this one, two, or three thing about it. This one actor was good, or this one aspect of it was good. I think it's an incredibly bizarre choice 
to be inspired by a board game, and albeit a popular board game, but it's not Monopoly, it's not Scrabble, it's not Risk, it's Clue, you play it as a kid, you enjoy it as a kid, and then you grow up and you probably never play it again. Whereas there are other board games out there that if you're going to base a movie off of, uh, have huge both child and adult appeal, and honestly, Basing a movie off of a board game is just bonkers to begin with. It makes absolutely no sense. The board game has no narrative structure to which to draw from. It's like, let's make a movie based off of Candyland. Like, what the heck? Oh, it's it's in the pipeline already. Hasbro has the rights to all this stuff. A oh, Candyland wow. movie is coming, whether you like it or not. Um, I think that's a good point. Um, one thing that I'll just add to this is like Clue feels to me like the best possible board game to base a movie on if you're going to do that because it is based in a literary and cinematic genre. Even though it doesn't necessarily have a consistent narrative, at least it has characters and it is built um, to imitate uh, books and movies that already exist that are based around meticulous plotting. So it's kind of perfect, even though it's this really weird choice in the first place. I mean, I get that a hundred percent. I think it's right, but I certainly try. I understand why it didn't succeed. Sure, I understand yeah. why critics looked at this and were just like, what is this? I'm supposed to take clue seriously, which I'm sure a lot of critics went into with that mentality and probably prejudged it and walked out disliking it. And also the movie is just flat out strange from start to finish. It's an odd movie these characters who all work with Washington all have done these horrific things from spoiler wall, Colonel Mustard, war profiteering, being a war profiteer, you know, to Miss Scarlet trading secrets from men that sleep at her brothel to you know, Mrs. Peacock, who apparently likes monkey brains, like and takes bribes and yeah. takes bribes so people can meet with a senator. These are all despicable, terrible, horrible people that are all in this one amazing, beautiful, charming tapestry of a movie. It's so strange. Um, it completely gay shames a character. Oh, yeah. I was 85. Being gay was not cool, you know? So it gay shames Mr. Green terribly. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you're right. It applies the principles of the whodunit and then successfully creates a somewhat serious, mostly comedic whodunit farce. And I think that's why it is so endearing and charming. And it is safe to say that the movie has had a life post its box office failures. When we posted on social media that we wanted to do this, the response was amazing and quick and very positive. Yeah, people got really excited, <laughs> like which You're going to talk Clue, because everybody that sees this movie now completely and totally falls in love with it. So I think pivoting the conversation a little bit, if you'll permit me, would it be all right with you if we discussed sort of the genre of the whodunit? I'm interested in where it came from, what are some of the markers of it, how it works, and how Clue kind of exemplifies itself as a whodunit. Yeah, it. I would love that. Um, I'll let you in just like on a little thing about me here at the beginning, um, which is that whodunits are kind of my happy place. 
Um, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this episode is because we recently saw Knives Out, which is a contemporary whodunit by Ryan Johnson, which uh, uses the genre to great effect for a very contemporary story. Uh, and we also were, you know, I think last weekend, just looking for a silly movie on Netflix and found the Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston movie Murder Mystery, which is a like total send up of the whodunit in a really delightful way, a silly movie that was a lot of fun to watch on a Sunday evening if you're looking for something like that. Uh, but it's a, it's a genre that's extraordinarily comforting to me. Even though it's about crime and murder and these awful things, uh, I find the, whodun the whodunit cozy. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. It's a term that was coined in around 1930, the whodunit, um, but it's a genre that has existed longer than that. Uh, most scholars will point to like the first literary whodunit ever being uh, one of the tales collected in the Thousand and One Nights. There is a tale that's called The Tale of the Three Apples that features uh, a detective who is unraveling a crime. And it's even been argued that the Sophocles play Oedipus Rex is a sort of proto whodunit, uh, which if you think about it, we really do get a mystery that has to be unraveled and characters who are revealing the clues as they find them and the audience tries to unravel the mystery with it. Why is Thebes in turmoil? It's because Oedipus married his mother and killed his father. There you go. Who done it? Um, but the That's a bit of a stretch, but I'll, I'll go there with I you. I mean, I'm not the only one who thinks that. But what distinguishes a whodunit from other forms of detective fiction is that it presents the crime, usually almost always a murder, as a puzzle that the audience unravels along with the detective. So we have a double narrative where there are the characters in the room interacting with each other, uh, you know, unfolding a sort of plot together. And then there is a second narrative, which is the crime. The, uh, the story that happened in the past that we're trying to piece together. And the clues that help to unravel that are revealed to the audience at the same time as they're revealed to the characters or the detective. So the audience has equal opportunity to solve the crime with the detective. I have to admit, as much as I love the whodunit and love mystery, uh, I am not good at that part. And I kind of don't care who done it. I'm like, I'm along for the ride. I love the puzzle. I'm going to let the detective do the heavy work. But if I really wanted to, I could solve that crime because I have all the clues that the detective has. Yeah, I do enjoy the aspect of trying to figure it out, but I don't go too heavily into that while watching it. I don't want to because it's just how I think. I don't want to distract myself from the movie trying to understand the clues. I'd rather go on the ride of the movie and see the clues as they come, but, and spend some mental energy being like, Oh, yeah. that person it's is so that guilty yeah. that they can't be the one that's too easy. I'm going to like, it's not going to be that one. You know, it's going to be most likely the one we don't suspect, which is this one which tends to be how these movies work. Absolutely. The unlikely suspect is deeply important to it. You touched on one of the interesting things that I think is, that I found about understanding how the genre works and that it is a genre in which the time of the narrative operates in two different tracks. We have the track of the crime, what happens after the crime that moves forward and then we have the detective trying to understand things by moving backward. Yeah, yeah. And then often it is the detective trying to find the story that occurred, but we don't see. 
we don't get privy to that story. So it's two stories happening simultaneously, one moving forward in time and one moving backward in time, one which we are participating in and going on the ride with, and another one which we are not participating, but we are trying to piece together. And then it meets with all of the main characters, usually getting into one central spot, and then the detective forging and combining these two temporal loops are these two temporal narratives into one cohesive loop? Beautifully said. Uh, you know, I listened to an interview with Ryan Johnson when he was talking about uh, the creation of Knives Out and talking about uh, the appeal of the whodunit. And he called that double narrative uh, sort of like you're eating a meal and there are complementary but conflicting flavors or like eating a Reese's peanut butter cup. You know, you've got these two things that are disparate, but they come together and they make this narrative coalesce in a way that is supremely satisfying. And that's something that's really appealing about the whodunit. And it, it, there is a broader meditation about how time works and how we move through it and how we can understand events that happened in the past. I have been fond of saying that a historian is equal parts philosopher, storyteller, and detective. And I also feel that the whodunit, in an interesting way, is very similar. We have the detective trying to figure out what happened. We have the writers who are creating the narrative in which we're all going through, and then we have the event that actually happened that the historian will then comment on afterwards. There's an idea that I learned while studying, of all things, the Crusades. And this was from a professor that was very influential to me. And the professor was a medieval history professor who was also a Buddhist and a woman. And you don't see too many Buddhist female medieval history professors. That is awesome. I love it. And her perspective was that we have to understand time as a single moment called now. And that the idea that there is a present, past, and future is an artifact of how we are moving through now. But it's all happening at once. And the idea being that you can't separate the events that happened in the Roman Empire from ancient China to medieval history. And that these are all connected. And this is where I formulated the idea of philosopher, detective, and storyteller. And what is a good whodunit if not operating in that moment called now and piecing together the unknown and trying to create a timeline that, and we, a narrative. Can, that yeah. we can understand as a story? Yeah, yeah. And how does how does the detective win in the whodunit? What do they do at the climax? What does Wadsworth do once he says, I know what happened. Let me walk you through the events of the night one step at a time. He tells the story of what's happening. And then, like the traditional whodunit, we box the murderer so that they have nowhere else to wiggle and they eventually confess to the crime. Yeah, wonderful. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful way of contextualizing some of the um, sometimes seen as the most tired tropes of the genre, but it puts them into a broader context where it makes sense why those work. Um, the golden age of detective fiction, when this was really uh, flourishing and there were tons of authors writing these kinds of stories, is usually considered the 20s and 30s, so right between the world wars. Uh, and at that time, the whodunit was the most popular form of detective or mixed, um, mystery or crime fiction. Uh, and mostly the whodunit was coming out of England. 
So while they were writing these sort of cozy country house mysteries uh, that had these very strict conventions, the Americans like Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler were writing hard-boiled detectives that would form the basis of film noir. Uh, so there was a very interesting disconnect between what the Americans were mostly writing and what the English were mostly writing. Uh, but one thing that is, I think, fascinating about um, this golden age is that the writers of whodunits and mystery fiction in general were disproportionately women. It was dominated by women writers, including a lady named Agatha Christie. Who? I've never heard of her. She's known as the Queen of Crime. Uh, and I'll tell you, she is the best-selling novelist of all time. She is outsold only by Shakespeare and the Bible. Really? And yeah, so for context, you're a Stephen King fan, right, Derek? Yeah, you can say so. Yeah, so Stephen King is is prolific, and everything he writes is a bestseller, right? Correct. So he has sold between 300 and 350 million copies of his books. That's amazing. It's amazing. Agatha Christie has sold more than 2 billion copies of her books. That I did not know, Stephen and that King blows me away. Stephen King does not come anywhere close. He's not even half of one of the billions, and she has two of them! She has at least two. It's between two and four. Four billion, and a hundred years after her death, she is still in print. Uh, she is someone whose work continues to be just ravenously gobbled up by all ages and all levels of into, uh, intellect too. So sometimes whodunits are seen as more trashy fiction or are seen as a little bit lower culture. But uh, so many intellectuals and great writers and great artists and great thinkers over the years have gravitated towards these books, have gravitated towards these very formulaic mysteries that have these conventions that you were mentioning, uh, that you know, feature a, a locked room of suspects, that feature uh, you know, a murder most foul that has to be unraveled by a charismatic detective who gathers everybody in one room and reveals the plot to them over the course of an hour. Like it, it, it seems, you know, like this is not necessarily the most intellectual of pursuits, but so many of us have gravitated toward that. And part of that is based on, you know, what you said in the beginning of this podcast, because there is an order that's being brought to chaos. And if we think about the golden age of detective fiction being in between the world wars, can you imagine a world in more turmoil than that? Can you imagine, uh, other than, you know, the time that we're living in right now, <laughs> but like, can you imagine... Uh, a time when it feels more comfortable to retreat to a world where even darkness, even murder, even crime, even mystery has a strict order to it, feels like it can be solved, feels like it's a puzzle that can be put back together and we can be comforted by it. So that's one of the reasons I think that people are um, so drawn to this genre and feel so cozy reading about people getting stabbed. Uh, it's something that continues until this day. Yeah, I think those are really good points that you are extrapolating about it. I'm blown away by the sheer volume of Agatha Christie commercial books being sold. I had yeah, no idea. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, obviously, I knew Agatha Christie is an incredibly prolific writer. I had no idea that the only two more published and read novels or works Writers, of literature yeah. were Shakespeare and then the Bible. Yeah. Have you ever read Agatha Christie? No. Um, I have read only a little bit. I've read some of her short stories. 
Uh, and I, I love like the TV adaptations and the movie adaptations of Murder on the, or on the Orient Express and so on. Um, but what's kind of funny about the genre in general and my introduction to Christie is I remember reading one of her short stories for the first time in sixth grade when my teacher was teaching a mystery unit and gave us, like split us up into groups and gave us sixth graders an Agatha Christie short story and said, or two thirds of an Agatha Christie short story and said, solve the crime and gave us this tool, gave us the writing and gave us all the clues the way the whodunit does and challenged us to solve the mystery. We couldn't do it. We were sixth graders. Like it was impossible. <laughs> it was incredibly complicated, but it was acknowledging the fact that that's what these stories are. They are this intellectual exercise. They're this puzzle box that you have all of the clues for. You have the ability to figure it out. And that can be uh, an incredibly stimulating activity, but also a comforting activity. Yeah. Very, very interesting. As I think about, in particular, this movie Clue, I think about some of the layers that make this movie specifically successful within the conventions of that genre. And one of the thoughts that I have is that looming over this entire narrative is the threat of a potential communist um, incursion into American government. Yeah. You have a whole group of people who are connected and powerful within the federal government, who all have a deep secret, which makes them susceptible to being blackmailed, which could also open them up to susceptibility to communist incursion. And one of the things that I like about how to do subversion right, because subversion is a tricky narrative subject. There are tales that are subversive that you sometimes feel, eh, you got cheapened and it doesn't really hit home thematically. Think of most of Game of Thrones season eight. Right, yeah. Subverting our expectations just to subvert them feels a little cheap. But in this one, in all three endings, they say the phrase, communism was just a red herring. A great line. And it's one of the best lines of the movie. And at the end of the day, I thought it would be fun to understand this movie in the legacy of the Cold War and the legacy of the Red Scare. Would you permit me a little historical interlude in this uh, conversation? I would. As we pivot into this, I just want to kind of parlay out of this conversation about the whodunit and how that genre flourished in a time of great turmoil. One thing I think is really interesting is that this movie is set in 1954, but made in 1985, made at the top at the like high point of Reagan era like uh, approval, uh, made at a very comforting and uh, you know confident time to be an American and yet it calls upon uh, you know this this historical period that you're about to reveal to us so I, I just want to hold that in there in our minds as we move into the historical context well we often feel us you know 2020 contemporary you know Western civilization and I have made this argument in the podcast is that perchance we're at the precipice of our civilization's decline and maybe some of the evidence that we have is the lack of, you know, individual liberties, the lack of being of people being able to think freely, the, you know, um, absolute partisanship that comes out of social media and us, you know, being so angry and pitchforks and torches and rah, rah, rah all the time. And then you read 
a little bit on the history of things like the Cold War and the Red Scare. And you think we've actually come really far. And there were times when we were legitimately imprisoning and torturing Americans because we thought they might be communist, even though there was no evidence. And you're like, well, shit, we're not doing that now. So maybe we're not as bad off yeah, yeah. as we thought we were, as we think we are, despite all the real challenges. I'm on a little bit of a soapbox here. Let me back up. What is this whole idea of the communist red scare? Most of us listening to this podcast probably grew up somewhere between the 80s and the 90s. And the idea of communism as a threat to an Americanism is really distant and far. Maybe we had an uncle or father or mother or aunt who talked about how much they hated communists, but it never really seeped in. In fact, for me, the first time I read Karl Marx, I was like, oh man, this dude's brilliant. This is great. Yeah. Yeah, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, why aren't we doing this? Yeah, we're all alienated. You know, religion's the opium of the masses and blah, blah, blah. So on and so forth. However, in between, so there are two red scares. There's the original Red Scare that happened in the early 20th century after the Bolshevik Revolution and the formation of the USSR. There was a direct fear that there could be some far-left extremists in America, and there was some evidence to suggest. There were a few anarchist bombings that occurred and some that were thwarted that happened here in the early 20th century, and there were several labor strikes that were going on in key cities, the first being one in Seattle. It was instantly thought that these labor strikes that were happening were the direct result of Russian communists in America orchestrating the strikes. The media at the time, which were largely newspapers, got hold of this idea and they propagated it. And most of these strikes that happened in the first Red Scare were put down pretty aggressively. A lot of people were hurt. Some people were jailed. Some people were imprisoned. It was not pretty. By the time the 20s came around and the end of World War I, people were feeling pretty good. America was pretty wealthy, and this was largely forgotten. Then the Great Depression happens. World War II happens. I saying those things so historically flippantly bothers me, but we just don't have time to talk yep, about yeah, them. Yeah. And at the end of that emerges a world where there are two great powers, America and Russia or the USSR. And we see the emergence of a second Red Scare. The second Red Scare is the legacy that Clue is living in. Come to find out, we, we generally call this era McCarthyism, personified by the Senator McCarthy of the Republican Party, who put on these public trials in which he was at first interrogating people in the State Department, trying to find people that were potentially loyal to communists, a lot of times jailing, imprisoning, and denying rights. Though this is true, that's one small bit of the actual history of that era. It was much more prolific, and it was much more embedded. States had individual laws. They had their own hearings. There was actually a Supreme Court hearing happening in 1955. It was a ruling called Dennis v. the United States, where the Supreme Court ruled you don't have right to free speech if you're an accused communist. The right is stripped from you because you might politically disagree wow. with capitalism. 
the Supreme Court ruled the First Amendment didn't apply to suspected communists. Yeah. Not actual communists. Which is also crazy, too, because it wasn't illegal to be a member of the Communist Party. It was legal to be a communist spy. It was illegal to be, you know, committing espionage. But yeah, it's just amazing and crazy the kinds of lengths that uh, that the law went to. In in the House of Representatives, they had the Un-Americans Activities Committee. Yeah, which is the, mentioned in Clue. Yeah. The HUAC. Their job was to find people that were un-American and imprison them. You know, uh, there were people that were executed during this. And um, yeah, it's absolutely a bizarre period of our history where one political party and ideology wielded a huge amount of power and pushed that power throughout all of society. The uh, American legions that we all, I'm sure everyone's had one in their town, formed as part of the Red Scare. And their job was to go out there and find communists, sometimes suspected communists, and they would just beat them and hold them without rights. And it was this incredibly bizarre time. We've all heard of the blacklists. Where, yeah, and Hollywood. And, well, Hollywood is the one we know the most of because so many movies are made about it. Right. Several industries had blacklists. If you were a suspected communist, in many industries, you were not able to get a job. Innocent professors, accountants, teachers, blacklisted, and they were put into forced poverty. And if you wanted to work, uh, you had to name names. And yeah. that was a big thing in Hollywood especially, but I'm sure in many industries there were people who had to you know, out other people in order to continue working and then were shamed for it. Here is the like fucked up part about all of this. It wasn't totally unfounded. Russia did have spies in America. In particular, there were um, spies famously leaked how to make the A-bomb from the Manhattan Project to Russia and helped accelerate Russia's advancement towards being a nuclear nation. That's pretty crazy. There were two, there were two convicted Russian spies from the Manhattan Project who were put to death. But these things took on a level of superstition and paranoia. Hysteria, really. That, yeah. And then they are personified by McCarthy. But it is much more deep and endemic and much more systemic than just one person right. and one senator, as we often think of it today. Now, applying this to Clue, Clue is living within the shadow of this, but it's coming from a 1985 perspective. So in 1985, there is still very much an America-Russian antagonism. There is still a Cold War happening. So this is slim pickings. There's no more McCarthyism we're not jailing people because they are too far left or have radical left-wing ideas. You know, we're not we're no longer suspending people's basic fundamental human rights because they disagree with the system of economics that our society is governed on, but there's still an air of cold war and communism is still the enemy. And in it it grounds the idea that behind all of the blackmail, behind all of the secrets, behind all of the lies and deceptions Maybe there's a communist. And in a typical clue deconstructionist fashion, it's like, nah, just a red herring. Yeah. Communism really wasn't the thing. Not a big deal. And in many ways, in so many of the cases of the McCarthyism and the absolute suppression of basic human rights we saw in the second Red Scare, 
there really weren't actual any communists there. Yeah. In in a true, like, we're going to upend America. We are spies and loyal to Russia. Well, and one of the fun things, if you look closely at this movie, is it takes place in 1954, uh, smack in the middle of the Army McCarthy hearings, which were a famous turning point uh, in McCarthyism when people, the public opinion started to turn against Senator McCarthy. Uh, and the reason for that was that President Eisenhower had allowed for the Army McCarthy hearings to be broadcast live. And if you're watching, you'll see that the cook is actually watching the Army McCarthy hearings happen live. And the one that she's watching happens to be the day that Joseph Welch said to McCarthy some of the most memorable words in American history, at long last, have you no sense of decency? So that was the moment when, you know, public opinion started to really shift. And it happens to be taking place right at the moment that the murder is happening in this New England mansion. It's kind of crazy. Absolutely. Fun things, 1954, you mentioned the Joe Welsh testimony. This is when McCarthy started going after the army. Yeah. This is also when McCarthy started going after the Eisenhower administration. That was a turning point. Eventually, in um, December of 1954, the Senate voted 67 to 22 to condemn McCarthy and his hearings, which was the end of his political career. And three years later, he killed himself through alcohol abuse. Oof, yeah. So died in disgrace and disarray. Yeah, and he was best friends with Roy Cohn, so. But another interesting thing, in this environment of, quote-unquote, McCarthyism, the second Red Scare, there was another organization who was able to capitalize on this and grow in power and influence, and that's the FBI. Yeah. The the Federal Bureau of Investigation is in this movie. J. Edgar Hoover is on the phone. And one of the just, like, the most hilarious moments, and so, like, and why the writing of this movie is so good. A police officer comes to the house investigating a found abandoned car, gets on the phone, and it turns out J. Edgar Hoover is there and goes, hey, J. Edgar Hoover's on the phone. Wadsworth, played by Tim Curry, goes, everyone's like, why is J. Edgar Hoover on your phone? He goes, he's on everyone else's phone. Why wouldn't he be on mine? There's another joke about him later, too. It's like, is the FBI in the business of covering up multiple murders? Well, why do you think they have a president called Hoover? (laughs) It's just so good. And and just this whole idea of being like, yeah, of course the FBI spies on every single American. The legal framework for the FBI to grow in power and influence and consolidate itself as a federal police investigation bureau— came directly out of the Red Scares. Yeah, yeah. It's like the federal government needs a a policing apparatus to go find, catch, capture, and either execute, deport, or detain suspected communists. That is deeply interested in, uh, you know, intelligence operations that is investigating espionage and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And in in this movie makes some of the best FBI jokes I've ever heard. yeah. Yeah, and in all three of the endings, the FBI is uh, sort of, they're they're kind of the Mounties or the Texas Rangers. Like, they're these uh, all-American heroes who come into, uh, you know, triumphant music uh, and come in and save the day and sweep everybody off their feet. So there is this tension between making these jokes about 
uh, these sort of open secrets about FBI surveillance or, um, you know, cover-ups, but then they're also the all-American heroes, which is really funny. Oh, yeah, I don't think this movie is anti-FBI. Not at all. In a modern context. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think it makes some really good jokes at the FBI's expense. But we also do need to reconcile here contemporary 2020 Americans hey, this organization got to its power and prominence suppressing communists. What level of authority does it have to spy on its own citizens? Are we comfortable with that? Because it's been doing it since the Red Scare. Yeah. Like the FBI's been on everybody's phone for a long time. Are we okay with that? Maybe the answer to that is yes, but maybe the, the answer to that is no, but we should be at least asking the question. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's something about the marriage of these two things, this, uh, you know, this age-old whodunit mystery fiction genre with uh, this historical moment and this historical anxiety coming together that works so well that becomes that chocolate and peanut butter Reese's cup, uh, these two complementary things that feel like they are disparate and feel like they wouldn't work necessarily together. Um I think it all really comes back to the relationship of the whodunit to the world outside. Uh, I mean, whodunits are finding their most popularity in between the world wars in Europe, when things are uncertain, when class distinctions are starting to break down and the old guard, the aristocracy and the landed gentry don't necessarily hold as much power as they used to hold in as much organization. You know, there's a lot of conversation around Knives Out being a whodunit for 2019, and it absolutely is. Uh, but they talk about it as though it's brought this old sort of musty genre into finally having a political conversation. But Clue has a political conversation. It calls it a red herring. But both of these things suggest that the genre hasn't always had a political or social awareness. And I think that that is... Uh, a sort of misguided way to look at the whodunit and mystery fiction in general. I think it's always had a political or social consciousness, especially in the way that it deals with class. Even though it has characters who usually are aristocracy secluded in their country home, they're upper class somewhat, there is always, always a, a, you know, a distinction between them and the help. There is always this awareness around the relationship between the upper classes and the lower classes. And at the end of the day, in these secluded conclaves where the upper classes still exist, in all of these examples, in Agatha Christie, in Knives Out, and in Clue, uh, there is a festering rot at the core of it. It's in these secluded conclaves of wealth and luxury that murder most foul erupts. So there has always been a sort of awareness around these social classes and distinctions uh, that I think is becoming more and more um, explicit as it goes on. But I think it's worth looking back at the genre, even if you see a sort of nostalgic haze around it, and looking for those, um, those character types and the way that people relate across class lines. Yeah, that's a very awesome point. Often the whodunit ends with the detective naming the murderer, having the detective understand what happened, and the murderer goes to jail. In a contemporary American sense, that's usually not sufficient evidence for someone to be convicted of a crime. And in certain respects, a lot of whodunits make fun of that. 
Um, one of them is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Another one is kind of clue, like, okay, do we have any evidence here? You've got no proof. And Wadsworth at the very end says, well, the proof is whoever has the gun. And that is what boxes that killer in. There was a time in which law enforcement operated under the principle that if the detective said you were guilty, you were guilty. And you really didn't have, you had to prove your innocence rather than being innocent until proven guilty. Even though that's enshrined in the American justice system, it hasn't always worked that way. Even to date, it doesn't always work that way. So there's a level of understanding the class and the power hierarchies within said class. You mentioned the staple of the wealthy aristocrats and the help. And it's always the help that are suspected first. The butler did it. It always is. Even though every other wealthy person, be them gentleman or lady, has just as much reason of seeing the old miser murdered as anyone else, the help are usually the first suspects in them. And sometimes, in even if they're the last suspects, they're typically the guilty party. The poor gobbling up and killing the rich. And if you are understanding this narrative as a class narrative, then that becomes an interesting dynamic in which to play in. Clue has literally, in the ending that did happen, Wadsworth the butler did it. He is actually the one out there killing everybody or helping people kill people because he is actually the the bad guy right well yeah so the third ending the like supposed actual ending features him uh, being at least the killer of one person and manipulating the entire group but the cut ending the fourth ending that was not included in the release has a uh, spoiler alert i mean for an ending that doesn't exist uh wadsworth did all of it because he couldn't be the perfect husband he couldn't be the perfect butler, so he decided to be the perfect murderer. So, of course, this movie that plays on all of the cliches of the detective genre had to at least film an ending where the biggest cliche of all, the butler did it, is the solution, which I think is great. And also, we assume that just because a detective understands the truth of a narrative, understands how a murderer happened, and how a murder happened, pardon me, that that means the murder has been proven. Think of... I don't know, Columbo or Murder, She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote. Where the detective just talks the crime out and then suddenly they confess. Yeah, usually they yeah they box them in until they confess. Yeah. And it's just because like, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. Didn't you, you? You can't deny it. Oh, you're right. I can't deny it. I did do it. Let me go to jail now. And as you said that, the whodunit genre came in between the World War I and World War II, in particular in England, and it was about establishing a sense of comfort. There's a comfort in knowing all you have to do is figure out who the killer was, and they'll cop to it. Yeah, yeah, there is a, a comfort to the order of it that's like, okay, this is how crimes are solved. This is how we resolve these deep festering issues. And this is how we bring order to a society that we feel has fallen into chaos. Well, what else you got here? I have a little bit of trivia, just a couple of fun facts about the movie that I think are great uh, when revisiting it. Um, one is just the crazy fact that uh, originally, before Leslie Ann Warren was cast as Miss Scarlet, uh, they were originally planning to, to cast Carrie Fisher. Um, 
but unfortunately, Carrie Fisher was in the throes of drug addiction at the time and had to withdraw. Uh, and just imagining like a world where Carrie Fisher plays Miss Scarlet is so um, so weird, but also kind of awesome. Um, Leslie Ann Warren is obviously amazing, and the way that this cast clicks together, I think, is fantastic. But just that's a, a fun casting fact. Um, as far as writing the screenplay. Uh, whodunits are meticulously plotted. Whodunits have to be crafted so carefully that you need a really skilled writer to be able to accomplish, uh, you know, the 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 magic trick that they really are. And on top of that, this is a sex farce too. So we're talking about two really difficult forms uh, to have to write uh, because you're trying to get comedy and taste and also mystery and also fool the audience, but also lead them on to try and figure out this mystery. So in order to write this screenplay, the story writer John Landis solicited three major stars to write it. Uh, and those stars are Tom Stoppard, who he approached, who is my favorite playwright of all time. And I can totally get why he was approached for this because Tom Stoppard is uh, a writer who is very intelligent, who usually writes big plays about ideas that also have an element of uh, existential comedy to them. Uh, but unfortunately, he had a very difficult time writing the uh, the movie, especially with the three endings, and ended up turning it down. Another person who was approached to write it was Stephen Sondheim, the American musical theater writer, um, which, okay, sure. And the third person who was approached was Anthony Perkins, who most people know from playing Norman Bates in the movie Psycho. Uh, but he was also in an early adaptation of the film Murder on the Orient Express. So that makes a little bit of sense there. At the end of the day, Landis and uh, Lynn, Jonathan Lynn, the director, ended up finishing the script together. But I love that all three of those people were uh, approached to write the screenplay. Um, just a little like fun thing about Anthony Perkins is uh, my mom grew up in New York City. And my grandfather will sometimes tell us stories about when they were living in the village. And they lived either in the same neighborhood or even the same apartment building as Anthony Perkins. And they would like walk down the halls or the streets sometimes and see Norman Bates just like walking next to them. Like, yikes, there's Norman Bates. Um, and my grandfather even tells stories about running into Angela Lansbury uh, occasionally, who plays, of course, Jessica Fletcher on Murder, She Wrote. So I feel very connected to this movie and this genre because of those little family connections there. Did you play Clue? I played Clue a lot. It was like my favorite game as a kid. Um, I always played as Miss Scarlet uh, because she was just so pretty. And I, I absolutely loved it. It was like my favorite thing ever. Did you play Clue? Of course, I was usually Professor Plum or Colonel Mustard. That would be my go-to if I could, depending upon the group of friends I was playing with. Um, but would be Mr. Green if I had to be, you know. Yeah, yeah. Nobody really wanted to be Mr. Green. Well, and you and I, we've been playing lately this tabletop game called Mysterium, which um, is definitely inspired by Clue and has sort of a similar objective. You have to figure out who was murdered and where and with what, but it's done through... Uh, sort of spiritualist psychic seance. Uh, and it's a really cool game. If anybody listening is looking for an interesting tabletop game and loved Clue as a kid, this is a great one out there, Mysterium. Well, one of the great things about this movie is it does get you to pause and reflect on being a gamer and having played games. And one of the great joys of my life has been doing board games. 
And tabletop gaming has been the way I still connect as a gamer. I don't play video games as much as I used to, which I did also really love because as a tabletopper, I can do this with friends and with family and I can have people over. So there's a much more tangible, real life, look across the table community aspect to it that exists and Clue is in the shadow of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we wrap up on this conversation, do you have any favorite moments or favorite lines from the movie Clue? Because we're talking about a comedy here that is just rife with jokes and hilarious moments and great actors. So I just want to know what what you love. Every single one of these actors has just such good comedic timing and instinct that I think in any scene you can pull out a favorite moment or a favorite bit. I would just have to call out when Tim Curry is shouting and everyone's just like, you need to stop shouting. I'm not shouting. Fine, that's it. I am. I'm shouting. I'm shouting. I'm they, shouting. And then the candle, and the candle falls hits him on the head, head and knocks him out. out, which I just think is one of my favorite, favorite moments. When I was a kid, and even to date, I crack up, and it's so fucking terrible. I am the singing, singing telegram. telegram. Bam! <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, that's still so funny to me. It's so terrible that that poor girl gets murdered, but, you know, I still laugh at it. For me, it's every time Madeline Kahn opens her mouth or closes her mouth or says something or doesn't say something or appears on screen or isn't on screen, I'm laughing at what Madeline Kahn is doing. Um, obviously, there is the very famous Flames speech that she gives in one of the endings about how she hated Yvette so much. It was Flames. Um, I can't even imitate it because it's just so genius and one of the rare moments in this very carefully written script that any improvisation was allowed because how are you going to stop Madeline Kahn from just creating absolute genius every moment? But in our latest rewatch, I found that the moment that got me the most was also a Madeline Kahn moment, but it's when Wadsworth is explaining what happened and he's running back and forth through the rooms and saying, this happened here, this happened here, this happened here. And he starts running up the stairs and he takes Mrs. White's hand and starts running up the stairs with her and she can't keep up with him. So she lets go of his hand and just falls flat on her face on the stairs and the camera doesn't follow her. The camera just keeps following Wadsworth and it just forgets that she has just fallen down the stairs. And I just, I, I cannot, I cannot describe uh, the joy that that brings me. And that's one thing about comedy is like, you can't describe it and you can't expect it. You can't anticipate it. You never know what's going to be the thing that sets you off, but good God, this movie is funny and smart. And I'm so glad that it exists. Yeah. There's also the conversation between Colonel Mustard and Wadsworth about the double negatives, whether there is or is not someone in the house. Yes. I've meant yes. I meant no, meaning yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> so someone is or isn't. There isn't, isn't, is, or is, or isn't. That's just such clever language play. Yeah, absolutely. We, and we could go on all night, all night, all the great quotes. I hope that you've had a chance to rewatch it. Uh, and if not, I hope that you make time to rewatch it in the future because gosh, what a fun movie and what fun historical and literary context to put it in. And until next time, guys, it was Mr. Green in the hall with the knife and be kind. Be kind. Be kind.